Hey everyone, this is episode 16 of Jointly Venturing, the world's only podcast dedicated to the question of world citizenship, what does it mean, and how do we get there? And today it's the middle of January in 2020, and we're recording this from the state of Victoria in Australia, and for the past few weeks, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, a number of other places in Australia have... South Australia as well, have undergone uh, extreme levels of bushfires and loss of lives, losses of two to 3,000 homes, and the burning of over 11 million hectares of land. Uh, Fires the likes of which even Australia, which is used to bushfires, has never endured before. Um. One of the amazing things about that whole process was to understand the fact that the vast majority of people that are actually fighting those fires, the thousands and thousands of of CFA officials that are actually in the field fighting these fires are doing it on a voluntary basis. That's an extraordinary thing that really took me a long time to understand uh, after I initially moved to Australia. Um, so three cheers for those thousands upon thousands of people, both from Australia and overseas who came to assist in fighting fires, one point at which covered in a 300 kilometer long fire front, um, in New South Wales and Victoria. So extraordinary conditions, um, that also covered entire cities, entire states and territories with acrid smoke. Um, almost everyone who was affected by the smoke instantly became a, a global expert on air pollution levels and, and would constantly go to their computer, including myself, to see just how bad the smoke was. And, you know, most of Australia is blessed with having extremely clean air for most of the year. And for a week or two there, Australia had by far the world's worst air quality. Um, a healthy level of, of particulate matter is measured at 50 and below. So today we're, we're recording in a place where it's at 22, so very happy. Two weeks ago, Canberra, the capital of Australia, was 4,800. So absolutely hazardous, plus, 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 plus. So that is the era in which uh, we live. And despite the fact that the Australian government is, has recently gotten last place, in global rankings of effectiveness of national climate policy. Um, And no matter how bad it was for the last few weeks, uh, the national government was extremely reluctant to acknowledge at all uh, the role that climate change played in this process. One of the things that came out of the fires was the fact that it's not just Kiribati or Bangladesh or Panama, or Fiji, or other countries that are generating climate-displaced people, but Australia itself is now generating climate-displaced people. Not only in the acute sense of people fleeing towns and villages where they were living that were threatened by fire, but an ever-growing number of Australians have made the choice to actually move permanently from where they were living before to what they see to be safer areas. And this is a process that has only just begun and will almost certainly get worse as time goes on. So we thought today it would be interesting to talk about that broader question of where people go uh, when climate conditions no longer allow them to stay where they are. And in that regard, we're very fortunate to have with us today in the studio um, Professor Daniel Fitzpatrick from Monash University Law School. And he's a professor in a range of issues, but most notably property law and housing law and and disaster law. And we're going to talk just a while about um, that whole question of land, how people relate to land, um, what happens in a world of 7.8 billion people when increasing numbers of people cannot get access to land or feel secure on the land that they've lived on forever. So with that... um, Welcome to Jointly Venturing, Daniel. Thanks, Scott. It's an absolute pleasure. So 
you know, we now live in a world where there's already a billion slum dwellers. Um, some people say the numbers are actually quite a lot higher. Mm. If you if you include the lack of security of tenure, yeah, it's probably half of humanity who could be evicted tomorrow <clears throat> if they um, if they um, you know are confronted by someone more powerful than than themselves. Yeah, so that's right. We are in a way, climate change is just making an ongoing crisis worse. Yeah, and there's really no sign of that crisis improving. In fact, you could argue that it's getting far worse and the definitely with, with property prices continually rising, particularly in cities around the world, whether first world or third world, that just makes it even that much harder for middle and lower income groups to access it. And in the era of climate change, um, those people, most of whom are very poor initially, um, have really no option in the absence of a positive government policy, which is something we would advocate for, of course, but not something that's commonplace. Um, and their default option is the slum. Mm, so, right. you know, wh- where do you think the world's going? What's the world going to look like in 2030 or 2040 when climate change gets increasingly worse? Well, you know, climate change is a multiplier. Um, what we've seen over the last 50 years is a, a pathology of, of poverty, failure of policy, of a failure of government, ultimately a failure of nation states to manage access to land and secure rights to land for, for poor people. And what we're going to see by 2030, 2040 is not just a, a sustained increase in internal migration uh, to urban slums um, from environmentally vulnerable areas, but we're also going to see just sudden massive spikes people moving because of disasters and and these things act on top of each other there's a slow flow of the river and then there's the flash flood and the problem is that that these events will overwhelm what inadequate institutions we have in place already Uh, but the the point that I make is that to interrogate where we're going and what we should do about it we have to understand the existing stresses on the system and the existing failures of the institutions that have led to a planet of slumps. Do you think, um, you know, this is a podcast that's ultimately about world citizenship as, as one of the remedies for some of the structural problems that continue yeah. to prevent the human race from reaching its true potential, essentially. Yeah. Um, how would you see world citizenship working to decrease the slum population and improving access to housing and land. Do you think there's a link there? Well, there is in the, first in a, in a negative sense. That is, we, we have to understand the core problem is not just poverty and, and the movement of people. The core, the core problem is that we've been left with this model of sovereign national states. Uh, and, and people think that this is a fixed system or that the global, uh, of global governance but in fact, it's a product of European colonisation. The, the, the Europeans diced and sliced the world uh, into borders that were often artificial. And then they left the picture. Uh, there were processes of decolonisation, but the, the nation states that have emerged from those processes uh, retain these structures that, that were developed in the context of colonisation. So in, in my field, uh, property rights... Uh, what we see is this strongly sort of state-centric picture which says you've got to get your property right from the state, right? Um, unless you've got that bit of paper, you're not, you're not a legal owner of land. And that has just been an absolute failure uh, throughout the world um, and particularly in post-colonial countries. So in order to understand or envisage a new world, a world based on global citizenship, we, we, we need to understand that nation states are, are not fixed and inevitable, that they are contingent products of invasion and occupation and exploitation, and that the tools of exploitation remain in place in, the, in, in a variety of settings, but particularly in relation to uh, property rights. Um, so the first thing is to understand that, uh, that we need to de-link property rights from sovereignty, uh, this idea that you can only get freehold rights, secure property rights from the state must be just sent to the trash bin. Uh, it's been a complete failure. And once we envisage that, we can move to a world where 
people get property rights as a matter of human rights and they're not dependent on state intervention to be regarded as owners of their land. Yeah, and one of, you know, one of the classic examples that makes that point all too graphically is uh, the topic of our most recent podcast, which dealt with land issues in Myanmar, yeah. where new legislation from 2012 uh, onwards, it's been revised, even made even worse, the, the Vacant Fallow and Wasteland Act mm. or law, um, basically enables the state to classify 30, 40, maybe even 50% of the country as technically vacant mm. um, because there's no official land title associated with that piece of land, even though people have lived there for time immemorial. So that's, I mean, if you needed a really poster child, yeah. bad example for how the nation state can totally fail in terms of protecting people's housing, land, and property rights, that's, you know, top of the heap. Yeah. And, you know, my and, view and is... And I should say that, you know, that, waste, that wasteland laws have been around since colonial times, so they're still being used. Yeah, um, right, right. So, I mean, my view is a little bit more nuanced, I guess, in that I've seen the way in which adequate legal protection against eviction and, and pro-security of tenure can really help people in slums in particular... Yeah. Um, to protect them from being evicted and at the same time give them enough security that they actually feel confident to invest mm -hmm. their own, even limited funds, to improve the neighborhoods. And, you know, that system can work um, when it's accompanied by the appropriate type of title um, that doesn't necessarily have to be private property outright, you know, uh, freehold system. Um, it can be some sort of moderate version of that but nonetheless enough to protect them, protect their investments and also protect them against being arbitrarily forced from their homes. So I think, you know, it can work. Mm. And, you know, one of the angles that we're exploring at Oneness World, um, which is, of course, the, the ultimate home of joint venturing, is whether it might be possible to have a global housing, land and property rights registry eventually. Mm. In part, bearing in mind all the flaws with the current system, um, but really motivated by the desire to ensure that um, where, there e where there are property records and where those can be used as a means of protection of people, very often, particularly in a conflict, they're either stolen and more often than that, they're fraudulently altered. Um, Johnny Jones puts his name in front of Jenny Jones and suddenly the property's theirs. Um, and ethnic cleansing, of course, is carried out in countless countries um, also involving the manipulation and or, or cancellation of pre-existing property records, et cetera. So part of the thinking is that if you had a global system that was totally independent, that was absolutely fraud-free, um, really, really highly, highly protected by the international community, the UN or some other entity, um, that every national system could feed into that and it would be impossible then to manipulate or alter by local actors. Mm. Because at the end of the day, you know, the more I think about the whole question of nation states, sovereignty, etc., you know, they're all really important concepts. And and nation states as such and th the nature of sovereignty gives individual leaders and governments tremendous powers. I mean, powers of life and death, essentially, you know, um, to basically do whatever they want within that jurisdiction that they call their nation state. And... You know, one has to wonder whether it's kind of come to a point now when there are so many leaders in the world which are anything but democratic in orientation, mm. um, whereby they have worked their way to the top and that the system, the way it's formulated now, essentially encourages uh, despotic, narcissistic behavior um, that will then allow people to have total control over their own particular chunk of planet earth right mm. so i think that's even the bigger challenge in a way than than slums in the end how do you manage a global framework whereby there's mm. still a significant number of people that will do anything possible to get power and then even more and very often worse things to maintain power mm. and then whatever they can possibly do once their power is ended to avoid either prosecution or a worse fate than that mm. you know so that, I mean, those are the things, the forces at play that uh, people who are already thinking in world-centric terms, who actually care about people everywhere else on the planet, mm. 
um, in a way that totally transcends the nation state where they're from or where they live, um, we'll have to grapple with, you know, in years to come. And another commonly shared trait of those more despotically minded leaders uh, is the way in which they view property and the way in which they view land, which is simply a, a pathway to further enrichment, you know. And they're not seeing land as a source of liberation for ordinary people or as a source of human rights or as a way for people to feel safe and secure and flourish in their lives as they live them out. They see it simply as something to be exploited and commercialized and, and used. And all those processes together have the net result of that asset being worth more and more in in pretty much every country in the world, there's very few countries right now where you could find land prices at a considerably lower level than they were 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, particularly in cities, which is where people are going. You know, the world is urbanizing. We're now the last 10 years, 10, 15 years has made that permanent shift from a rural majority world to an urban majority world. Unless you have governments that intervene and recognize that the power of your economy comes from those people, and they need a safe and secure place to live, it's just going to get continually worse, I'm afraid. Mm. And with climate change, unless you have proactive policies that are directly designed to help the most vulnerable coastal and, and other communities to find a new place to live, their default option is the slum. Mm. That's it. That's the only place they can possibly go. Mm. And if we already have a billion, I mean, we're really, in all likelihood, looking at a future of probably three billion people in slums by 2050 in a world of 9 billion mm. souls. And the bottom line is the world does not have to be that way. Mm. That's us collectively choosing to allow that to happen. You know, Other pathways, other avenues for a much more positive vision of the future world are out there and ready to be implemented. And that's what we need. And growing that collective awareness of all of us being totally dependent it's so obvious it almost bears not saying, but it's forgotten by virtually everybody. If you even use the term planet Earth, people can often look at you askew and like, what are you talking about? You know, why, why are you such a weirdo? You know, and bottom line is, whether we like it or not, we're all dependent on it. And there's nowhere really else we're going to be able to go. And letting market forces loose, letting the powers of globalization and nationalism and populism, etc., as if they're going to be the remedies, I just don't see it. Well, um, I think the fir first thing I'd like to say is that there's definitely always going to be a role for the state and, and there's a role for um, national laws and policies and much of which is aimed at constraining the state. So laws like anti-eviction laws and um, uh, uh, adverse possession, um, they're, they're all part of the mix. And I think... This is what's highlighted by climate change is that if we start from the assumption that climate change will uh, multiply existing sources of inequality and conflict um, and that directs attention to existing problems and existing institutions to solve those problems, um, uh, then we can, we, can move, we can move to a world where we really have to have you know, total policy solutions um, so those policy solutions are local, national, and global, um, and they're and they're not just you know um, your traditional sort of uh, system of, in my view, a system of international law, which which is mediates everything through a, a, a large number of things through a Westphalian sort of nation state system that we have to look at. You know things like not just. Uh, the, the rights of citizens against the state, but you also need to look at the interaction of 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 citizens and and the whole sort of private law uh, um, system of uh, of of land titling. So it's it's total policy responses at scale, you know, local, national, and, and global, and and so definitely there are national solutions. Um, in terms of global property rights solutions. Uh, I'm really taken by uh, UN Habitat um, developed some software for um, slums or informal settlements. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, what they do is um, they use the power of mobile phones. Um, so they will take a photo of someone in an informal settlement in front of their house 
with their name and if they've got a, an address uh, for the house, that that'll be included uh, as well. But it's primarily their name. And then that's uploaded to, a, uh, to the cloud and there's a software system that geolocates that, that residence. So what it means is that, um, uh, you know, you, you've got a sort of a globalised system in the cloud for at least for where people are living. So when people are displaced, the, the, the issue that we've both worked on for, for decades includes the problems of proving identity and proving rights for displaced people when they were living in informal settlements in the first place. And, and they're the ones who miss out, uh, you know, because we require proof of, of these issues. Now, if you've got something, in, in particularly in highly climate-vulnerable areas, where, where you've got proof that people were living in a certain ge- geolocated place, then you've got the beginnings of, of a form of a global registry that acts as a insurance policy against a world of um, displacement and disaster. Right. Do you know how widespread that program is, that people have... Yeah, where they've used it, for instance. Yeah, so where my understanding. Yeah, so my understanding. It's um, it's um, uh, it's been rolled out in a number of um, cities in Africa, um, and uh, the problem that UN Habitat, as we know, has always faced is that it, it's it's constantly on the lookout for sources of funding, um, to to roll it out in other environments. So my understanding is that it hasn't been used much outside of Africa, um. But there's a, there's a website called the Global Land Tools Network that contains case studies of its implementation and, and reviews, and it's it's not without problem and it's not without criticism. Um, but you know, my view with with property registries is let's start not with the ideal and let's 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 not start with this top down system, but let's start with the bottom and just say right, who's living where? Okay, let's just get a record of that. We're not going to say they're legal or illegal. We're just going to avoid that that stupid game. Just who's living where, and then then you have this localized system where, if people do, uh, you know, die and and their and their children inherit, or if they do sell, you know, you can just have a localized dump of the of the record of the transaction, um, and uh, and now with you know with the the, the power of um, you know, phones and, and global computing that that can be digitalized and and uploaded as part of the. You have a record of possession, and then you just have a simple record of of transactions. And um, we don't we don't worry too much about you know, oh, is this freehold or is this leasehold or are they squatters? We just we just start off with, okay, who's there? How long have you been there? You know, has it been sold? Who to? And that's the that's the beginnings of a system that will protect these people uh, in a much better way than the current system. Yeah, and I think most listeners would be uh, amazed to know the scale of people in the world today that are not adequately protected. And even even if it's they incredible. have an informal sort of arrangement of registration like you right. were just talking about, the chances of them being able to get a lawyer that they can afford mm. to go to court mm. to enforce it where that judge is truly independent and truly impartial and not expecting a bribe. Unfortunately, that's a very small percentage of, uh, of the human race that can actually access a clean rule of law-based judicial system that's affordable, accessible, and fair without having to pay a bribe to get a judgment in their favor if there's a dispute over their ownership or, or possession of, of a house. So that's another lacuna that we need to deal with. And I think the scale of overall deprivation of housing, land, and property rights in the world is much larger than most people realize. Mm. Um, and there's a huge bias towards property ownership as such backed by a legal title. Mm. And if you have that, you are going to be looked at fundamentally differently than your next-door neighbor who might not have that title, who might have lived there for just as long as you, but not be as well-connected. And in the event of a dispute or a conflict and, and the wish to return... You'll get to return if you're the property owner, and you'll get to reestablish control over it. Your neighbor probably won't, and that's played out time and time again across you know the world as we know it. So, I mean, I've always taken the view that of of all the human rights that exist within the body of international human rights law, maybe with the exception of of 
access to clean water and sanitation, um, housing rights is clearly the most denied, much more than the right to food, for instance. I mean, there's way more people that have housing slash land problems um, than who are actually starving or perpetually malnourished, you know? And it's partially because of this vested interest that so many politicians and leaders of countries have in that sector directly. I mean, they've shown even in Australia here that the number of property owners that are in parliament that have more than one property is staggering. I mean, it's the overwhelming majority. So there's no interest at all in the minds of politicians, whether labor or liberal or national, maybe even greens, I'm not sure. Um, there's very little interest to say, okay, property rights, property values have risen enough. Let's stabilize it for a while and let's allow more people from the younger generation to get access to the market. I mean, all my friends who are in their 20s, even 30s, the vast majority of them, and these are, you know, highly educated, smart, very get up and go type people, they don't even expect to, to ever own a house, mm-hmm. which is totally contrary to the ordinary, you know, Australian ethos. Mm-hmm for the last hundred years where there was always an expectation you would eventually own something. And, you know, that's a staggering change in a society as wealthy and prosperous as this one, you know, and that there will be backlashes as a result of that um, because tenant protections are nowhere near as strong as they are in other Western countries with the exception of the United States, mm. where they're even less than here. Mm. Um, I think it's less than 10% of American tenants have any sort of protection against uh, anything other than just cause eviction. Mm. So the vast majority can be evicted on the whim of a landlord. Mm. It's increasingly getting like that here too. And prices are also going up in the rental sector. So, you know, you almost can't win. Um, and it's just part of that global concentration of economic power into fewer and fewer hands, which includes mm. houses. There's parliamentarians in Australia who own 10, 20, 30 houses, I've heard. That's you know? right. And what do they, you know, you think they're going to do anything? to protect the rights of homeless people, the rights of single, you know, female-headed households, lower-income groups, college kids that are just entering the labor market. I mean, there's no chance, obviously. So it's another one of those structural impediments that, you know, really, again, comes down to the worldview of the people concerned. You know, I mean, are you really in politics just for yourself, ultimately? We can ask the world's politicians. Um, Or are you a public servant? I mean... you're, you're meant to be a public servant. <laughs> that sort of goes l- in line with being a politician. Um, and when you look around the world, fewer and fewer can truly be classified as, as public servants. And while we're on that question of politicians, and you know the Davos meetings are on right now in mm-hmm. Switzerland, I was actually invited to one of the, one of the meetings there, but I oh, yeah. declined to participate. Um, you know, that's where the billionaires of the world come together and try to find a way to, uh, in their view, uh, make the world a better place. That's the way they present it. Whether that's true or not, we can discuss. But, you know, I think we also need to explore this idea of whether it's a legitimate thing to allow an ultra-high net worth individual who's, let's say, worth even $30 million or above. There's not that many in the world. Small tens of thousands. Um, maybe even not that many. I mean, there's two 2,300 billionaires, so there wouldn't be that many people who are worth more than 30 million. Um, but they are disproportionately represented as heads of state in the world. Is it truly compatible to be an ultra-high net worth individual and simultaneously hold political control over large numbers of people where you hold the final say? And I think we need to explore the idea of uh, you know, essentially making people choose. Yes, you can become rich and wealthy and and pursue a greedy life, um, but part of the cost of that is that you're not allowed to become a political leader. Mm. you got to make the choice. It's either political leader, i.e. public servant, or wealthy businessman, businesswoman, whatever you happen to be. And I think we need to start that discussion <laughs> because clearly... Uh, the c- number of countries that are being run by billionaires or ultra high worth, uh, ne- high net worth individuals over 30 million is a growing one. And it's not promoting democracy. It's not promoting the rights of ordinary people. It's not promoting greater equality. It's simply creating the conditions for ever worsening climate change, ever worsening conflict, ever worsening threats, um, 
eventual economic collapse as more and more resources go into non-sustainable directions. So, yeah, I mean, it's once again, it's, it's our collective choice as the human race. Do we want that future? Do we want a future of a handful of rich people running everything? Or do we want a future that's far, far more democratic than now? Well, you know, I think the, 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 the system that created many of these problems, which is fundamentally centred around, you know, the nation-state and, and concepts of sovereignty and um, the sort of control over a territory that you described before, is also, uh, uh, is, is by its nature not set up to provide the solutions. Uh, and there's just too many solutions I, I see now that are predicated on... Um, assumption that the state can deliver and that if you do certain things, you can make the state do produce certain results. Now, I'm not saying that um, there's not a role for, you know, national policies and, and national human rights structures, but I think we just need to fundamentally rethink where we've come from and the extent to which the current system is fit for purpose for a world where these uh, problems have been <coughs> arisen under their watch. Um, now, as I said before, we're looking at total human rights solutions and total HLP rights solutions, local, national and global. Um, so on the question of, of renters, um, you know, clearly uh, there's a major role for residential tenancy protections um, and it's a national level uh, thing, um, there's uh, a, a, a big issue with preventing land inequality arising in the first place. I think uh, case studies like uh, Colombia um, um, uh, and other places in Africa where there's, there's extreme levels of land inequality show that once you get highly unequal land ownership systems that it's almost impossible to, to roll them back. Um, uh, yeah, certainly the systems where you, f you force uh, people off land uh, don't work. The World Bank promotes systems where um, they subsidise market-based solutions to land inequality and by and large they haven't worked. So really we, we have to, you know, to look at uh, uh, prevention. So, you know, renters, land inequality, uh, informal settlements... It's horses for courses in terms of working out solutions. But if we, if we um, focus on the global responses, you know, there is a power in transparency. So if we have globalised records of uh, where people are living, what, is, what their rental arrangements are, um, what is happening to them in particular contexts, eviction, disasters, climate migration, then, you know, the power of the world community can come into play and that's something that transcends the system that has actually caused a lot of these problems to occur in the first place. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the big challenge, of course, is uh, recognising the positive attributes of the state, mm. so to speak. And, you know, there's plenty of examples around the world of very successful states mm. that have definitely prioritised the rights of the poorer segments of society and mm. greatly assisted them to rise out of extreme poverty. And sometimes they're very state-centric and authoritarian in nature, like China mm. <laughs> right now, where hundreds of millions of people have absolutely, without question, risen out of extreme mm. poverty in the last 30 years, mm. um, to countries like Sweden or or Norway, or Denmark, or Holland, some of those Scandinavian, Northern European options, where the state played a very positive role following the Second World War in terms of assisting people to climb out of poverty and protect them at the level of their housing, land, and property rights. So I think the role of the state is still, always has the potential to be a very positive force in terms of protecting people's economic, social, and cultural rights, including their housing rights. How you actually go from today in 2020 to 2030 and 2040 um, using state-based state models that do not involve mass surveillance, that do not involve 
you know, absolute loss of any semblance of privacy of any type that do not involve social credit schemes like in China, whereby, you know, if you don't have a high enough social credit score today, um, you are legally prevented from buying an airplane ticket or a train ticket between cities in China. You know, if you happen to be caught jaywalking, I mean, we're talking about minor offenses. We're not talking about huge political offenses that they would see or, or, or criminal acts or anything like that. Um, so, you know, what we really want, of course, is, is a state that's powerful enough to, you know, regulate affairs in society, tax the right people, spend money in the right way to achieve the objectives that are promised by, you know, the human rights treaties without sacrificing all of the freedoms and privacy and everything else that's associated with, um, you know, oppressive regimes. And, you know, I don't really know the easiest pathway um, to get there other than, you know, raising the level of citizen awareness across the world and, and actually, in a way, re-embracing the whole concept of citizenship. Because increasingly, all we've become is consumers. You know, people aren't even referred to as citizens in many countries anymore. It's just about their consumptive capacity. And in a country like the U.S., where I think what 60, 70 percent of the national economy is based on consumer consumption, um, there's a direct interest, obviously, in, in the powers that be that people keep buying and keep consuming, obviously, with huge climate effects and many other effects. So, you know, finding that way forward um, in a world where the population keeps going up, where income inequality keeps worsening, where extreme poverty is going down, but relative poverty vis-a-vis the wealthiest is certainly going up, where security of tenure protections are going down, where conflict in, in between states is definitely going down, but within states definitely going up, um, and where there's a, you know, this big battle again between the two behemoths, you know, the, the China and the United States. Um, once again, going through that inevitable cycle of who's going to end up on top. You know, who's going to be the big guy now? Who's going to be the next hegemon, you know, the next empire? And I think that is something we really collectively need to recognize. Let's forget about empires from now on. Let's simply see ourselves as one single human race, one single entity, where you don't give up the things that you love about where you're from. You don't have to give up your culture, the food you eat, the music you listen to, the religion you believe in, your hobbies or whatever, by embracing world citizenship. You just simply add another layer of complexity to your to your world of of multitudes that everyone contains, you know? And I think spinning it in that way, you know, showing that world citizenship is something that's beneficial to everyone that can actually improve people's lives without having to sacrifice uh, your love for the, you know, the mountains in your area or your coastline or whatever it may be, um, your culture. You don't have to give any of that stuff up. But what the end result is you gain uh, the recognition by everyone else in the world that you matter, you know, that your life is precious and priceless and should be as good as it possibly can be, and that it's everyone's responsibility to create conditions to make that possible. Yes, we've gone a long way towards that, right? We've done extraordinary things in the last, well, let's say during the Westphalian period from the mid-17th century till now. Um, But we're really at a critical historical juncture, I think. And there's so many good people out there in the world proposing great ideas. I mean, by the thousands. They're they're everywhere. I mean, they're every continent, every country, all over the online world, there are so many people that are thinking in these terms, you know, and yet it's just not at all mirrored at, at the domestic political level with the exception of a few generally very small countries. And, you know, my greatest concern is that, you know, all of these wonderful ideas are out there and very easy to understand and conceptualize, so much harder to implement. And do we have enough time, you know, essentially? Do, do we truly have enough time to put these great ideas into effect so that the worst impacts of climate change, species extinction, etc., you know, don't reach beyond a tipping point from which we can never return. I mean, this just today, yesterday, every day, um, at least 100 species went extinct. You know, I mean, that's just a tragedy. Yes, indeed, it's a part of the, 
natural processes in one way, but on the other hand, in the Anthropocene, the era in which we're living, um, it's largely because of the way humans have decided to do things, mm. you know? And, you know, that's a dreadful future to look forward to, and I think that's the greatest frustration, that we have everything at our fingertips to create a far better world than the one we already have, um, and yet we don't take advantage of it. Well, you know, I think the the old debates about, um, you know, effective states and pro-poor states are still more relevant than ever. ever. So, you know, liberal democratic principles, the sort of um, democracies we see in Scandinavian countries, uh, democratic socialist principles, um, and, and all the great political and ideological conflicts of the 19th and 20th centuries are still totally relevant today. Um, and we and we we can't throw them out, and so the battle to empower and at the same time constrain the state is still ongoing. Um, where I think uh, you know we can point point the way, along with so many others, as you say, to a to a future, a global future, is to try and move beyond conceptions. Uh, that we have in the current system, where it's it, 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 it's a it's a sort of hierarchicalized sort of two dimensional system of policy making, where it's global, through to national, then to local, and I think we need to go to a much much more of a polycentric system, where you know you have global, national, and local, but the local is plugged into the global, and the global is plugged into the local in, in much stronger terms. And you know we, we've both got children, and 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 climate anxiety and, and the fear of a dreadful future is just ever-present. And we've just gone through the bushfires here in Australia and the just apocalyptic scenario. Uh, it's, just, it's just really hard to take. Um, but I just resolutely want to remain an optimist. And Me too. We, have, we have processes of globalisation at the moment and this sort of incipient formation of the global mind that's really exciting. And, you know, when I see memes flash around the world in a matter of seconds and go viral, uh, when I see the way that young people all over the world share similar mindsets and similar sort of cultural points of reference, I feel a, a great deal of hope. And, you know, how do we get there? Do we have enough time? These are the critical issues. But in the broad brush, I think a polycentric world, global, national and is really what we're talking about. And we've just got to get there through total solutions across the board that are tailored to each specific instance, uh, but guided by these broad principles of global citizenship and human rights. Yeah, absolutely. And as, as Sean Buta said during uh, uh, the most recent um, episode we had uh, on Myanmar, you know, he said that, you know, the, these types of themes are universal and essentially uh, ongoing. Nationalist sentiments, populist sentiments, they're a fad. Mm. That's the phase we're passing through now is essentially a trendy fad mm. period of time whereby in lieu of any other creative way of looking at things, people automatically turn inwards and uh, that's exploited by politicians who cynically use that political force for their own ends, you know, and I, you know, I couldn't agree more. And when you break it down, I mean, there's no logic to, particularly in this unbelievably interconnected globalized world. Um, it's absurd to tr try to think that a nationalistic inward looking approach is going to solve all of the problems that you have, whether it's declining population levels, um, difficulties in the economic sphere, um, you know, pol even political ideology, whatever it may be. Um, in a world where everybody is totally mutually in, dependent upon ultimately everyone else. There isn't a country in the world that doesn't import a huge amount of things um, and very few that don't export a huge amount of things. So, you know, I mean, simply take your cell phone and hold it in your hand and you have a small little piece of the Democratic Republic of the Congo in your hand, <laughs> right? I mean, Coltan is available only, as far as I know, in DRC. It's the only place in the world where it occurs, and it's in every cell phone. Mm. Um, who thinks of that every day? And, you know, the, the, 
if you just take 30 seconds and look around the room, wherever you are in your car or whatever, and imagine where is the origin on this planet of those things that you see that piece of metal or that piece of wood or that, or that statue or, or that book or whatever it may be, chances are it comes from somewhere else. And that was the whole theory really behind uh, the post-World War II order. If we could just bind ourselves enough economically, we would never fight each other again because we'd just be fighting against ourselves, essentially. And I think that's more true you know, today than ever before. And that is a part of the reason why there are fewer international country-to-country conflicts than at any time in history, even while there are a growing number of internal conflicts. And, you know, in this era of climate change, you know, the denialists can deny it all they want, but all they have to do is get on a plane and I'll give them the 101 destinations to go to and they can see it right in front of their face, as we have seen all over the world, you know. Um, That's the way we have to approach it. We live in the Anthropocene. You know, we are living in an era of extinction and other than Extinction Rebellion and a whole range of other groups that are trying to draw attention to it, Greta Thunberg, so on and so forth, the climate movement, um, progressive political parties around the world, people are drawing attention to it, but the numbers just keep worsening, right? There's more extinction, there's more CO2 in the atmosphere, there's more bushfires, sea level rise is not slowing down, coastlines are, are eroding and sea levels are rising at, a, at ever-increasing pace. And... Um, you know, that, that's not looking good. That's not looking good. So, but let's try to end this on a, you know, positive note. I mean, we've only really had 400, 500 human generations um, since the beginning of our species. It's not all that long in the overall scheme of things. And we are at a acme sort of moment now. We, are, we have progressed incredible lengths um, and, and achieve things that no one could have ever predicted. So even now, even 10 years ago, before there were even iPhones and all the other subsequent technology that's emerged, um, no one could have imagined that we would reach this point. Nobody would have ever imagined that everyone would be on Facebook and Instagram and, and TikTok and all these other social media sites. So why don't we imagine something infinitely more positive by 2030 and 2040, whereby CO2 emissions actually went down, where there was more uh, democratic engagement by more people in more countries than ever before. There were more women in parliaments than ever before. There was less poverty and less inequality than ever before. And economic decision-making was not based on one to two-year, five-year profit timeframes, but six, eight, ten generations into the future. If you start thinking like that, and that becomes a, sort of the mainstay of all societies in the world, that our ultimate quest can, should not be absolute wealth for the, for the absolute wealthy. It should be sustainable human existence for as long as we can make it happen. And I think, you know, that's certainly the future I'm, I'm shooting for. You know? How about you? I'm shooting for it as well. You know, um, my view is that... Uh, stuff like um, stop the boats and build that wall. They're just pathologies. Uh, You know, the system has to produce them, expel them, and move on. Uh, In in the long run, maybe maybe Trumpism is something that we had to experience so that we know just how bad it can get and we can envisage a better alternative. you know, if there's one thing from climate change that we can take that is a positive, is that it will force us to live better. Um, we will be more locally sustainable. We'll be more connected to our communities. We'll be more globally aware. We won't be as wasteful as we have been. And in the long run, you know, that's going to be a good thing. So if we can take that positive out, out of today, then I'll be a happy man. And I think climate change also forces us to see that we're all in it together mm. as well. You right. know, it affects, yes, it affects the rich less than it affects the poor, but there's nowhere that's unaffected. Mm. And bearing that common experience in mind, you know, that does provide a stepping stone for 
all sorts of other policies and approaches that we can pursue that really brings us all together instead of continually dividing us. You know, and the bottom line is, you know, both of us have been fortunate enough to work all around the world. Yeah, we made our own CO2 footprint, no question about it. Sorry, planet. We are truly sorry. (laughs) But it also enabled us to, you know, interact with people from quite literally every country on planet Earth, you know. And to this day, all those millions of people I've met and hung out with in all corners of the planet, I've yet to meet one who wanted their children to be, be sick, who enjoyed being hungry, who was just wantonly violent against everybody that didn't look or believe like them. And that is the world. You know, people are essentially the same. Where we're different, we can call that culture. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's something that is, should be cherished across the, the world. But what we share is so infinitely greater than, than what divides us. And we need to get back into that. And if we do that, it's not that hard to imagine um, some extraordinarily great things happening in the future whereby you know these these dismal days of the end of this period of of history um are distant memories and indeed as you said things we needed to get through Mm. very often at the end of a a historical epoch or or the end of an evolutionary stage whether it's politics or what whatever system we're talking about the end period of that tends to be highly toxic, highly unstable, um, as that quantum leap is eventually made. And it happens in every system. And I think, I really believe we're kind of at that stage now. We're at the deep toxic phase of the next step upwards that millions upon millions of people are already at. You know, I mean, it's in a way for people who already see the world in world-centric terms, it's like we're being... Uh, governed by toddlers you know i mean they're acting at this level of consciousness of it's your fault no it's my fault no no you know and bickering and 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 fighting over piddly things and all the people that are beyond that are just saying come on guys let's get get with the program you know it's the stakes are too high you know so with that thank you very much daniel fitzpatrick Uh, pleasure and uh look forward to seeing you soon and If you have any uh, ideas for future episodes, uh, let us know. We'll be talking to my friend Aziz, who's a Syrian refugee from Beirut next week. And we have a whole huge lineup of guests uh, for the remainder of the year, 30 or 40 of them. So keep listening. Tell your friends. And until next time, see you soon. Bye now. Ciao.